from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome once again to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Tuesday edition, they have to clean up their act. They have to do a better job. They have to be much more fair to other countries, including the United States, or we're not going to be involved with them anymore. We'll do it a separate way. That was President Trump earlier today responding to a question about his letter yesterday to the director general of the World Health Organization demanding reforms within 30 days or threatening to permanently cut U.S. funding. The president and others have repeatedly pointed to the WHO as providing cover for China's lack of transparency on the coronavirus outbreak that has resulted in tens of thousands of deaths worldwide. Leading lawmakers on Capitol Hill don't want to just stop with the defunding of WHO. They also want to go after China. One of those lawmakers, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, is here in just a moment with more. And the latest showdown over religious freedom and government lockdowns is in Oregon, where a county circuit judge ruled Democratic Governor Kate Brown has overstepped her authority. But the state Supreme Court has stepped in and halted the lower court's action until they hear the case. Brad Dacus, president of Pacific Justice Institute, who is representing the churches in the case, is here later to explain it all and give us a sense of where this case may go. Also, after shocking revelation about FBI misconduct in the case with General Michael Flynn, lawmakers are looking for answers from FBI Director Christopher Wray. Now, he's apparently missing, or at least not answering. Chairman of the Republican Study Committee, Congressman Mike Johnson, is here with more. And two members of the uh, House of Representatives, new members, I should say, Republicans who won special elections were sworn in today. And shortly after they were sworn in, they did something else. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise will be here to tell us what that something was. And finally, as the coronavirus pandemic has brought education back home, parents are taking a closer look at what their kids are being taught, or should I say indoctrinated with. In fact, did you know this? This month is Sex Ed for All Month. What does that mean? Well, Kathy Roos, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Human Dignity at the Family Research Council, is here with a brand-new parental resource, Sex Education in Public Schools, Sexualization of Children, and LGBT Indoctrination. All of that and more coming up on this edition of Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is at T. Perkins. Okay, the World Health Organization wrapped up its two-day annual assembly in Geneva. While uh, embattled Director General Tedros secured statements of support from many member nations, the assembly unanimously passed a resolution calling in part for a review of the organization's response to the coronavirus pandemic. But the major focus was on a letter from U.S. President Donald Trump, who had a, uh, a laundry list of problems with the U.N. agency and then threatened to cut off funding if... The agency did not reform itself within 30 days. Now, the significance of this, the United States is the largest donor to the World Health Organization. Join me now to talk about this is Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, who is been on has been on this from the very beginning, not only with the World Health Organization, but China as well. Senator, welcome back to Washington Watch. It is so good to be with you, and thank you so much for being so faithful to talk about this issue with China and the way they spy on us and they are using technology to infiltrate different areas and, uh, of course, always looking for power 
and trying to outman our military and look at what they're doing in pharmaceuticals as well as other consumer products. And uh, now they're trying to use the World Health Organization to shield the mistakes that they made during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, you apparently uh, are on the China's uh, blacklist, I guess. Uh, they've taken <laughs> guess note. So. <laughs> they've taken note of the fact that you've been so vocal in uh, calling on the United States government to take actions against China. One thing in particular that seems to bother them uh, is the fact that uh, you have a, a, a measure called the Stop COVID covid act which would allow americans to sue china for the coronavirus pandemic the fact that they set on this information for six days allowed it to spread it's cost uh, tens of thousands of lives and you're saying hey they need to be held accountable the american people should be able to do that well of course they should and this it deals with the foreign sovereign immunities act and it's what the 9-11 families used to seek restitution for for their loss of lives and livelihood it was used after the beirut bombing some of our friends in israel have used it in times past um, so this would not be a first-time action but we believe because covid 19 can go under the classification of a biological agent. China knew for 51 days they had an outbreak. They had 3,000 cases before they said anything. They locked people in their apartments and left them to die. It spread to an epidemic, and then, as you said, they knew they had a pandemic on their hands before they said anything. President Xi knew this for six days. They didn't let people leave. Ubay province, Wuhan, and go anywhere else in China, but you could get on an international flight and go anywhere else other than China on the face of the earth. And therein lies part of the problem, because the president has pointed out that not only did China do this, trying to, to cover this information, but they had the assistance of the World Health Organization, which, according to the international health regulations, it requires a country to report the risk of a health emergency within 24 hours. And as we just said, the president of China, the Communist Party, set on this for six days, knowing that they had this emergency health um, issue um, spreading across China. Well, they knew it. Yes, they knew it was going across China. Everybody around the globe knows this came out of Wuhan, China. They tried to blame it on the U.S. military. They tried to blame it on Italy. And during the 51 days they knew they had an outbreak, what did they do? They were busy hoarding personal protective equipment from around the globe. And then when the pandemic struck, what did they do? They upped the price on masks and gloves and eyewear, things that people would need to keep themselves safe. Now, uh, Senator uh, Blackburn, the, the critics of this, which the, the critics of the president are many, uh, it's basically called the media. They have uh, said, oh, this is the president just trying to cover his uh, his tracks. Uh, you know, he's going after the World Health Organization. That's going to endanger 
uh, you know, lives around the world. Well, lives have been endangered by the lack of action by the World Health Organization, and I think the United States has a right to say something about their actions, given that we're given that we're the largest donor to the agency. Well, of course we do, and what we have to realize is that our last three pandemics have come from where? China. And we know that this will not be the last, but we have been able by taking action to to keep these uh kind of under control. When you look at SARS, when you look at H1N1, when you look at Ebola that came out of Africa, by getting the WHO and the CDC involved, you're able to lessen the impact of that because China hid information, lied about it, refused to be transparent. And, Tony, you know, to this day, they still have not let the CDC and the World Health Organization into that Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology where they were doing the coronavirus research. They still have not let them in to help assess this damage. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, my guest, talking about the World Health Organization and the president's uh, letter that he sent to the director general, Tedros, yesterday, saying that if there are not significant reforms in the next 30 days, that uh, the U.S. funding of about $450 million a year would be permanently cut. One of the the claims that the president has made is that the World Health Organization is China-centric. Do you you agree with that statement? I I do believe that the WHO has become China-centric. You know, you had Tedros out there saying, oh, China is working hard. China is trying. uh, They are being transparent, things of that nature. China helped to put him in that place. But I think more important than just the single issue and focus on the World Health Organization, which is necessary, and there have to be reforms there, that this COVID-19 is going to cause many of our allies to join us in saying, let's review China's participation in the WHO, the WTO, uh, the UN. China, with all of these... uh, human rights violations against the Uyghurs and against their own people, they are seeking a seat on the Human Rights Council at the U.N. Yeah, that's that's like the the fox guarding the hen house, uh, having Uh, the keys and everything. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I want to go back to this statement because in the wake of uh, the two-day meeting that just wrapped up in Geneva, the general uh, director general uh, Tedros, uh, and, I'm, and this is from a uh, AP story, said that the world owed China gratitude for the way it brought other nations bought other nations time to plan with the extraordinary measures it was taking to contain the virus. Um, I, I, I would say that that is lacking in any substance or fact, but would appear to be that he is uh, bought and paid for by China. Well, and we know that the fact that China was hiding information and was not transparent cost tens of thousands of lives, as you said earlier, and it has cost tens of thousands of 
livelihoods to be lost. In Tennessee, we have so many small businesses that are just going to close. They couldn't survive this, whether it was a hair salon or a small business retailer. And you have all of this, Nancy Pelosi and all the foolishness that she was exercising last week and people that are trying to use small business retailers as a pawn and people are suffering under this and it is because china did not step forward when they knew they had an outbreak and say something and ask for help so the three thousand cases has become hundreds of thousands of cases and hundreds of thousands of people with illness and uh, death, unnecessary death and loss of life and loss of livelihood. Well, hopefully China will be held accountable in large part because of the actions you're taking to allow the American people to uh, go after China for the damage that they've done, as you said, in the way of lives and livelihoods. Senator Marsha Blackburn, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. All right, uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Fortunately, she's in a red state where they actually have a good governor that's uh, opening things back up, unlike some of the other states. And we're going to be talking about that next. Oregon, a uh, county circuit judge, uh, stepped in and said the governor, Kate Brown, overstepped her boundaries. But then the state Supreme Court stepped in and said, wait, we got to hear this case first. Well, we're going to talk to the man who brought the case on behalf of about 10 churches. We're going to be talking with Brad Dacus of Pacific Justice here next on Washington Watch. Don't go away. As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider and instructor 
a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Stay in Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is uh, at T Perkins. And let me remind you, the new and improved Stand Firm app. It will not only keep you informed of when Washington Watch is airing, and you can uh, listen to it anywhere in the world, but it also puts into your pocket the tools you need to be a part of preserving and protecting our republic. To find out more, go to TonyPerkins.com. Follow the links over to the new Stand Firm App. All right. The Oregon Supreme Court has put a hold on a county judge's ruling that Oregon Governor Kate Brown overstepped her authority when it came to her stay at home orders. Um, where's all this going? The state Supreme Court says we're holding this until we can hear the case. This was brought on behalf of about 10 churches in uh, Oregon and representing those churches, Pacific Justice Institute, and the president, Brad Dacus, joins us now. Brad, welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, Tony. Appreciate it. So uh, you were coming to the aid and assistance of churches there in Oregon who have been told they cannot meet, and there's been some, uh, well, let's just say the, the, the application of this law was not fair. And so you stepped in, you got a favorable ruling from a county judge, but the state Supreme Court has stepped in. What's uh, what's happening? Yeah, the, the chief justice for the state Supreme Court of Oregon uh, issued a, a, an emergency stay, and it will be uh, reviewing the matter probably by the end of this week. Our attorneys are working diligently right now preparing the proper uh, briefings and pleadings for it. Uh, the, uh, the interesting thing is this judge, in the lower court, the county judge, uh, was not a conservative Republican appointment. <laughs> this, this judge was actually uh, nominated and appointed by uh, this, this governor. So uh, for him to, to rule as he did uh, was took a lot of courage, and I salute that judge for that. Uh, where, uh, the problem is that four of the seven justices sitting on the Oregon Supreme Court uh, were appointed also by the governor. And so uh, there's an element of politics at play. But if they just look at the law, the right. Oregon Constitution and the state statutes applicable to the, the issue of emergency uh, executive orders uh, for the governor, it is a it's night and day. It's, it's clear cut. There's no gray here at all. Uh, some right. states, this is California, a, this, yeah, there's this is a matter of fact. This is a matter of yeah. fact, because she, the authority that she has been granted by the legislature is she has a 20 day, a 28 day limit on a uh, emergency de- declaration regarding a health crisis. Um, there's right. no question that that's been exceeded. And that's what the judge, the county judge ruled on. Is that correct? Right. He just he just looked at it. And he said, OK, th- this is what it says. And then after that, the law requires and the state constitution that a three-fifths majority of the state assembly and state senate has to approve any other governor orders uh restraints uh constraints like that uh moving forward and that hasn't happened so it's very clear-cut what the law is this is a testing tony i believe to the integrity of the judicial system there in the state of oregon the federal courts 
are being cleaned up tremendously by President Trump and the appointments uh, through the, the existing Senate um, approvals. But at the state court levels, uh, it, it's another ball game. In liberal states like Oregon, uh, this is uh, a serious concern moving forward to, for not just people like us who appreciate civil liberties, but for the people who are living in Oregon relying on those judges to be uh, fair and equitable uh, enforcers of the law and, uh, and not uh, makers of the law. Well, I mean, this, this actually comes down to the rule of law, does it not? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's, there's really there's no wiggle room around this uh, except touchy feelings. You know, they say, well, I, there's no, you know, legally there's nothing there. It's just say, well, you know, like one judge once said, well, I, these are, hard, you know, interest, you know, hard times. Uh, I'm going to ignore the law. Uh, and that was dealing with uh, funding, federal funds uh, being given to uh, individuals who are not legally entitled to it. The judge says, I'm just going to give it anyway. Uh, that's what we're, that's uh, overt judicial activism. That's what we're having to, to fight. Not the law. The law is very clear. It's the extent to which judicial activism is, is or is not dominating that state Supreme Court in Oregon. I mean, this is an interesting case because I, I read through it, and you're right. This is not. This doesn't really go into the constitutional issues of religious freedom. I mean, that's that's uh, another argument to be right. made. But this is ba- this is based solely on what the state law says that the governor has authority to declare these emergencies for 28 days. She sought to extend that. This lawsuit says, wait a minute, you don't have that authority based upon the, what the legislature, the authority the legislature has given you. Now, I think this is an important uh, educational moment for states all across the nation because this is, this is unprecedented in what we've seen. I mean, we've never, uh, you know, in our lifetime, we've never seen something like this where you have uh, you know, governors, mayors declaring these extended uh, emergencies where people are essentially locked in their homes. So this check that the legislature put on the governor is quite significant, a 28-day limit, reasonable. Other states should be considering this. If they do not have, because they've never paid really attention to this because it's never been used, they need to make sure that these limits are placed on executive authority when it comes to this type of power. Uh, Without question. I think red states, uh, more conservative states, are going to be very um, uh, quick to do that moving forward. Uh, Blue states, where they want government to have power, those in uh, more liberal states, Maybe less prone to, to make those kind of, uh, you know, checks and balances, reforms that are needed. But absolutely, we're looking at looking at this in the rearview mirror. It, this should be a no-brainer for uh, all states to adopt this kind of reform to make sure this abuse of power does not happen in the future. We shouldn't have to go into federal court and argue constitutional rights when this is something that could be easily kept in check with just proper. Uh, checks and balances uh, like we're talking about at the state level. So, uh, Brad Dacus, when will you or when do you expect to hear something from the Supreme the Supreme Court there in the state of Oregon? Uh, we're hoping by the end of this week, we still have oral argument, we still have a hearing. Uh, if people want to keep up with it, they can go to our website, EGI.org, and uh, we have a conference call this Thursday at 2 p.m. to update everyone on what's happening among the churches. They can register at our website, EGI.org. All right, very good. We'll also have that link uh, at our website, TonyPerkins.com. Brad Dacus, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. All right, uh, find out more, go to TonyPerkins.com. Follow the links over there. They do, uh, do great work out there on the West Coast. All right, where's Waldo? 
or should I say, where's Ray? Christopher Ray, FBI director, missing in action. Two Republican lawmakers looking for him. They want answers. One of them's here next. Mike Johnson joins us. Don't go away. Washington Watch, and I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Right, you've heard of uh, Where's Waldo? Where's Christopher Red? After shocking evidence was released from the Department of Justice, it appears that there was, um, to put it mildly, some ill intentions in the case of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. As a result, lawmakers are asking questions of the FBI director about the case. Problem is, they can't find him. He's not responding. Where is he? Join me now to talk about it is one of those lawmakers, Republican study, uh, the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, who represents the 4th Congressional District of the Bayou State. Uh, Mike, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony, always a pleasure. Thanks for all your work. Well, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you and Jim Jordan are staying on this case because what was what appears to have been done to General Flynn is an atrocity. But you're asking questions of the FBI director and he's not responding. What's up with that? I, I wish I could tell you what's up with it, but we are not going to let it go. And we need to frame up the context. People get lost because there's so much information regarding all this even in recent days that's come out. But here's a quick summary of where we are. Now, just remember to set the table here. Since President Donald Trump launched his campaign for the White House, several investigations now have exposed that there was this overt political bias, serious misconduct on the part of the FBI. The the Obama-Biden-era FBI, they they used Democrat-funded opposition research and Russian disinformation. They used doctored evidence. It was all of that was the basis to illegally spy on a Trump campaign associate. And then the former FBI director, James Comey, remember, he caused sensitive information about his interactions with President Trump to leak to the media. And then senior FBI employees discussed an, an insurance policy that they had against President Trump. And now here's the latest. We have these new revelations now about the FBI's interactions with the former National Security Advisor, which was General Flynn, Lieutenant General Flynn, and they make it clear that the FBI, that their wrongdoing, everything that we have known to this point, Tony, it, it's worse than we thought. These new revelations suggest clearly they had a pattern of misconduct. They had politicized the highest levels of the FBI, and that should be a great concern to every single American. Well, what really bothers me, and I've seen this used even back in our home state of Louisiana, I've, I've seen uh, officials that have been charged with this crime of lying to the FBI. And according to evidence released um, regarding the White House meeting on January the 24th, 2017, they, they actually admitted that they wanted to try to get him to lie so that they could prosecute him or get him fired. They were essentially trying to trap him in a lie, make him lie so that they could go after him in order to get the president. That is exactly right. That is not hyperbole. This is some conjecture. We have it from court documents now, Tony. April 29th, the U.S. District Court judge unsealed documents. They they had previously been withheld from uh, General Flynn and his legal team. But the documents show exactly what you just said. The FBI apparently sought to set a perjury trap for, for Lieutenant General Flynn 
during this interview they had, this infamous interview January 24th, back in 2017. And this document is in, includes, of these documents, there's a handwritten note there, and it's dated that same day, January 24th. It was reportedly written by the FBI Assistant Director of Counterintelligence, Bill Priestap, and he explained in his note that the FBI's objective was, quote, to get him, that's Flynn, to lie so we can prosecute or get him fired, unquote. I mean, that is just explosive stuff. And so Jim Jordan and I on the, on the House Judiciary Committee uh, sent a letter a few days after this became known and after we were able to dig into this, and we're asking uh, Christopher Wray to come before us, the current director of the FBI, to answer to this. And he, we, we got radio silence from him. He was supposed to have responded by a couple of days ago, and he hasn't. And so now we have no choice, but we're, we're going after these, these individuals who were specifically involved in this. We're, we're asking the, that that assistant director, the former FBI assistant director of counterintelligence, Mr. Priestep, to come in and talk with us under oath. And we want uh, Agent Joe uh, Pientka to come in as well. He, he was one of the ones that was interviewing General Flynn in that infamous meeting on, in January of 2017. So we have to get these answers, Tony. The American people need it. And at the end of the day, what is at issue is the faith that the people have in our institutions. My goodness, if the FBI's top officials can't be trusted, we're all in serious trouble. Congressman Johnson, what I hear repeatedly is people want, when they see this stuff and they see this information, more of it coming public, they want to know, are these people going to be held accountable for what they did? We're talking about the nation's top law enforcement agency, and as you said, some of the people at the top of that organization. Is that your intent, to make sure that these folks that clearly uh, appear to have been, I should say, broken the law, are, are they going to be held accountable? Tell me they have to be. We have to do that because what's the issue is the faith in our institutions, the faith in the rule of law. I mean, justice has to be blind. We have to enforce it at the highest levels, particularly there, because they have an even higher uh, degree of accountability and responsibility. And that is what has been breached here. And look, the, the, the thing that the fear that goes down the spine of every American, every average citizen, all of us, right, is that this can happen to the director of national security, okay, if it can happen to the president of the United States, my goodness, what could they do to us, average citizens, right? Excellent point. Out, and I think we will. Excellent point. I mean, here's a decorated veteran who served this country so honorably, and they basically just trashed him, ran over him in an effort to try to take down the president. Uh, we're going to track this as you continue to focus on this, and uh, certainly want to have you back on uh, as you get more information. Mike Johnson, as always, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. This is a, this is a, a tragedy that our nation's top law enforcement agency would be involved in this. It's got to be cleaned up. All right, coming back next, two new members of Congress. They were sworn in today, and then they did something else. Steve Scalise tells us next. As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. 
Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So glad that you are with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it's at T. Perkins. All right, today, two new members of the House of Representatives were sworn in. They were Republicans who won special elections. And uh, shortly after being sworn in, they did something else. Here to tell us about it is the House Minority Whip, Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Steve, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony. Always great to be back with you. All right, you've added two new members to uh, to the Republican conference, but you also got uh, two new signatures to your discharge petition. Tell our listeners about it. Yeah, and this is really a big deal, Tony, because this is something that I know you've been a leader on with us for a long time. And what we did, you know, we've got a discharge petition on Ann Wagner's bill, the Born Alive Act, and this is a bill that – you know, you, you would ask the question, why do we need a law to say that you can't kill a baby that's born alive outside of the womb? And yet in some states like New York and others, they actually created a law that allows them to kill a baby outside the womb and call it abortion. And so uh, the, the abortion, the born alive law gives that full protection uh, to babies who are born alive. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, as you know, doesn't want to bring this bill to the floor. So we have one tool that's rarely used in Congress called the discharge petition. And what it means is if 218 members of Congress sign on to that, then even though Nancy Pelosi doesn't want it to come to the floor, it automatically comes to the floor for a vote. And why is this so important? Because we now have, with today's action, 206 signatures on this discharge petition. That's how close we are. Closest probably any pro-life bill has ever come to being forced onto the floor over the you know, pro-abortion speaker. And so uh, we had two members sworn in. Like you said, uh, many, many people probably don't know this because they're both Republican. And so Tom Tiffany won a seat in Wisconsin that was held by Sean Duffy, so it stayed a Republican seat. But in California, you had Mike Garcia win Katie Hill's old seat. Uh, this is a seat in Los Angeles, California. And just a week ago, Republicans actually won that seat in Congress. First time since 1998 that Republicans flipped a seat from Republican, from Democrat to Republican in the state of California. So it's, it was earth shattering. The media never reported it because they don't want this narrative to go out because it shows you we can win the House back in November uh, and we can beat Nancy Pelosi and fire her. 
But I talked to both Tom Tiffany and to Mike Garcia after their wins, and both of them committed that they want, they're want they both pro-life, and they said that they would sign it on their very first act. So today they got sworn in, both of them, got sworn into Congress, and both of them signed the discharge petition, which is a, it's a major victory for the pro-life community that this has now become a rite of passage that as soon as you get sworn in as a Republican member of Congress uh, in uh, in a special election, the first thing you want to do is sign that discharge petition to protect life. And they both did it today. It was, it was great uh, to see that commitment to life by these two new members, including a Republican member of Congress from Los Angeles. And, and I, I want to commend you for this, Steve, because you've made this a defining issue, uh, this discharge petition. Uh, you've campaigned on it. You've taken it to these districts, and uh, and you have worked to get all of the Republicans on board with this, and even Democratic members have signed the discharge petition as well. This is a uh, this is an, a defining issue in elections, uh, as as you not just in these two special elections, but I believe that this issue of extending the most basic rights to a child who survives an abortion is born, that we would provide them basic medical care and not execute them, as the president describes what happens in Virginia and New York. I mean, this is a defining issue, and I think it's going to be a defining issue in November. I agree, Tony. I think it will be one of the big defining issues and, you know, kind of a choice between us and them. And Joe Biden, has taken the complete pro-abortion position. Uh, he's against this this Born Alive Act. Uh, President Trump's been a great champion, as we all know. Uh, he wants to sign this bill. And so, you know, number one, we've got to keep President Trump in office, but we also need to get a Republican House, and I think we will. And this is going to be one of those issues in a lot of battleground districts where we've seen it all before. You know, you've got all these people that run and say, hey, I'm going to be pro-life or pro-gun. And then they get to Washington and in a lot of these swing districts, uh, these Democrats that are in these districts campaign saying they'd be pro-life and pro-gun, and yet they won't sign this discharge petition. They have an F rating on life and on uh, with the NRA. So uh, this is going to be something that is going to be hard for them to, to get around when they wouldn't stand up for life in the most basic way after the baby's born. Uh, right. You do polling on this nationally. A majority of people who define themselves as pro-choice think it's wrong to kill the baby after it's born alive. Uh, and and most, the most questions I get on this, Tony, is why do you need a law to do this? Because people right. think it's already illegal. I mean, to me, it's murder. To you, it's murder. And yet in some of these states like New York, it's legal. And so we have a chance to make it illegal. And, uh, you know, I've been a champion of this bill since Ann Wagner filed it. And we, we we're one step closer today with, uh, with this action. One final question for you, uh, Congressman Steve Scalise. The, as we move closer to the election, you talked about some of those in the battleground states and these districts that uh, President Trump won in 2016, but yet they're held by a Democratic member. Are some of those members going to be maybe inclined to sign this discharge petition? Well, you would think they would be, but a lot of them refused to sign it. Only three Democrats have signed it so far. And Dan Lipinski, as we all know, has been one of the most pro-life Democrats in Congress. Uh, He's so pro-life that the radical left, the socialists, went after him. AOC went and got an opponent to run against Dan. He represents parts of Chicago. And they beat him in his primary just a few weeks ago. So here you have a Democrat who's liberal, but he's not a socialist, and he's pro-life. And to them, that's an anathema. 
And so Democrats beat a sitting member of Congress in, in, his, in his primary because he was pro-life. And uh, it's a shame, but it shows you how far their party has moved where they're not even pro-choice, they're pro-death. And they would defeat a person who says, if a baby's born alive outside the womb, you shouldn't be able to kill it. That's quite significant uh, for them to take out a sitting member of their own party just because he's pro-life. Tells us a lot about where the parties stand. Congressman Steve Scalise, as always, thank you for joining us. And again, thank you for your leadership on such an important defining issue. Always great to be with you, Tony. Thanks for what you do in defense of life. All right. Congressman Steve Scalise of my home state of Louisiana. And this is a defining issue. I mean, you think about it, step back from this, you know, objectively. We're talking about children who could survive outside the womb. And as the governor of Virginia said, well, just, well, we'll make them feel comfortable until they die. What does that say about America? That's why this is such an important issue, this discharge petition. You can find out more. Go to TonyPerkins.com. You know, we had our baby hat campaign to promote this, and uh, we were ready to deliver almost 90,000 baby hats to Capitol Hill in a huge baby crib, but then the coronavirus hit. And uh, so stay tuned. That's still coming. All right, speaking of uh, coronavirus, coronavirus has brought education back home for many families. And one of the things they've discovered is what their kids have been taught. Now, you know, when most of us were in school, sex education involved a couple of uh, uncomfortable hours looking at simple line drawings. You know, you can make a few jokes about them and laugh. Uh, Basically showing human growth and development, and you listen to advice on how to be careful, respect others, and save sex for marriage. Well, the facts of life have not changed, but uh, inclusivity and sex positivity and other popular buzzword concepts have changed sex education. And a new publication documents how education has given away to indoctrination. And uh, joining me now to talk about this is FRC Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Human Dignity, Kathy Roos. Kathy, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. I'm glad to be with you. And you have a new publication, and uh, it's, it's all about this issue of sex education. This is not what those of us who were in school, you know, 30 years ago or so uh, had as sex education. No, uh, it's changed quite a lot. And there are really two problems that parents have with today's sex education. And one is that it unnecessarily sexualizes children at younger and younger ages, more and more graphic material, um, teaching things to kids like how to consent to sex. I mean, it's really, it's outrageous. And then the other problem is really the indoctrination, and it's a radical sexual ideology that is being indoctrinated, that the kids are being subjected to. And that includes things like transgenderism, born in the wrong body lessons, um, and all of the LGBT crusade, which has really become the heart of sex ed lessons today. So we have, we have two, fr- two fronts to fight this on, and actually two battlefields. I'm not a... I'm getting out beyond where I can do metaphors properly here, but because it's not only the sex ed classes, but it's also the policies and what's in the hall rooms and what's on the calendar and what's in history class. So it's it's spreading beyond sex ed class into sort of the the, the whole environment of the school. 
Well, this month, I believe, is uh, called, is it Sex Ed for All Month? It is. Where, I mean, this is, as you say, permeating mm-hmm. education. And, and let me ask you this question, because as you talk about the sexualizing of our children, yeah. it's creating pressure, from my perspective, as I see, read the reports and see the information, is this creating pressure for our kids to engage in this behavior because it's just filling their mind with so much stuff? Well, research is showing just that, that um, there have been two major um, um, uh, research studies um, studying basically meta-analyses where they study studies about school-based sex ed. Um, one was a couple of years ago, and, and the other one was just recently, and they both found that school-based sex ed Programs are failing at a rate of 87%. What does failure mean? It means that they're failing to postpone sexual activity in kids. They're failing to prevent teen pregnancy. And shockingly, Tony, a substantial minority of these programs are actually increasing sexual activity, increasing the number of sex partners, increasing sexual experimentation by kids. So absolutely, what you think would happen is happening. So the question, Kathy Roos, is, why is this being taught? Well, um, it is being taught by, by well, it, to understand why, you see who. And who are Planned Parenthood, the largest provider, they claim to be, of sex ed in the country. Um, CECUS, which is the original um, creator of institutionalized sex ed education, and the SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center, and others. So these are powerful, wealthy, in some cases international pressure groups that are using sex ed to push really a political agenda. And they're not even candid about I mean, they're not even shy about that anymore. They're candid about that. CECUS, which is the um, largest sex ed promoter, I think, um, at least institutionally, has rebranded itself now, and they call themselves Sex Ed for Social Change. So it's not about education anymore. It's about promoting social justice warriors, it's about um, gender ideology, it's even about eradicating white privilege. That's what we're doing this month in Sex Ed for All Month. So it's it's using kids as pawns, it's indoctrinating them, and using sex education as the tool to reach them. Um, and it's all behind parents' backs. Right. Parents are the enemies. And the parents don't know about it, and they don't want the parents to know about it. But when you when you lead children down this path of early sexual exposure and engagement, this sows moral chaos and confusion into their lives and, of course, makes it easier for this agenda of the left to be advanced in society. Yeah, it really is about getting children off balance, so much so that they can't even rely on reality. In, in these lessons, the, one of the most sinister developments, of course, is this transgender ideology where, where children are taught that they could be born in the wrong body. Talk about getting a child off balance. Planting so that seeds of doubt. Absolutely. So they have no firm ground to stand on, and they're much more easy, easily to manipulate then. And it also in, encourages them not to talk to their parents. Yes. I mean, some of the lessons, and over the research I've done for this pamphlet, the lessons are so manipulative. They use um, techniques where I used to think, but now I thought, and they have the children kind of use this language, which is which is used in psychological man- manipulation. They, they require certain language changes on the part of kids, which we know, you know, man- is, is a way to manipulate ch- people, you know, man- manipulating the language that they're allowed to use. 
Um, it, there's so much that's being done that parents have no idea about, which is one of the reasons why we, we needed to bring all this together in a pamphlet. And it shows what's happening all across the country. It's not just New York. It's not just California. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. We don't have the time to go into all of this, but I want people to know about this new publication, Sex Education in Public Schools, Sexualization of Children and LGBT Indoctrination. This is not only telling what the problem is, but also gives parents action steps. Absolutely. Yes, we couldn't just paint. We couldn't just tell the bad news. And there are things parents can do and must do. Some of them might be counterintuitive. So parents really need to look at this um, this new um, resource that we have, um, because we do as parents, we are we are on the front lines um, and we need to exercise the power that we have to and, protect and, children. And in this publication, you talk about some of the tools that parents don't know that they have, that they actually do have, that they can utilize to protect their children. Right. And, and my favorite one is something that we've developed here at Family Research Council, which is we're calling it the universal opt out. You don't have to wait for the school to provide you with a form to sign to say, I don't want my child exposed to these things. You can proactively fill out this letter, send it into your school every year, and that tells the school that you do not consent to your child being exposed to any of these things wherever they crop up. School assemblies, history class, doesn't matter. It's time for mama bears to step forward and protect those baby cubs. Kathy Roos, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Tony. Folks, get a copy of it. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Share it far and wide with friends. All right, we're out of time for today, but I want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 